Alright y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest on this episode is Mario A. Pita, whom is the author of the books Lyrical Emissary and Image Marriages, and has had poems published in The Lyric, Lucid Rhythms, Lighten Up Online, and Angle, a journal of poetry. He has also published some translations of the works of his mother, the Cuban poetess and exile Juana Rosa Pita, including Manuscript in Dreams. A study of Chopin. He studied art and photography at Florida International University and marries art and photography with poems at his blog, Snapshot Couplets. Mr. Peter came back by the woodpile to both share some of his poetry and talk about the ideas behind them. Love Vision. A woman strolls along the wooded trail with joggers, bikers, skaters speeding by and taps the path to read the way like braille, and sweeps to feel where obstacles could lie. From in her radio some people talk, and keep her in the twilight company, and others often join her on her walk. She smiles at the joys her soul can see. The sight of her has pulled me from my woes, that blinded me to other people's plights. Their blessings and their curses, highs and lows, their sufferings as well as their delights. A woman on the trail is blind, yet she, with beaming smile walking, helps me see. I was curious, what was the story behind your poem, Love Vision? I um, was on the bike path one day. I was thinking about some problems that I was having. And I saw a woman who was uh, walking on the path. She was blind. And she looked really, really happy. I was thinking, wow, she really sees something that I don't see because she's really happy. On the other hand, I'm not at all. Or rather, I wasn't at that particular moment. So I thought uh, she was, um, you know, seeing something that I couldn't, even though she was blind. So I wrote that sonnet immediately after and I did, in fact, end up giving it to her. She was very moved by it because I, I saw that she goes to the church where I go to. And uh, so I, I just ran into her one day and I, I gave her a copy. But um, she also requested that I um, send a Word document because I guess she must have something that reads the actual poem. So that I thought was really nice because I felt, um, you know, that... Uh, I had this experience when I saw her and I was able to communicate that to her. So it's not like just like I saw her and never saw her again and wasn't able to share that with her. So I felt very happy about that. Yeah, I think that's great because even myself, I think when I try to write poetry or maybe a lot of poets or songwriters particularly, they do that kind of observation thing like you're saying, but they never seem to talk to the person they're observing. And we tend to guess a lot and assume probably too much. Yes, it's true. And, well, I think that, like, you know, in the old days, I might not have done something like that because, you know, I, when I was growing up, I was very shy. Subsequently, I've had some pretty intense experiences that were pretty frightening. And so 
as a result of that, I'm not really scared of those types of things anymore. I'm not scared of, you know, walking up to somebody and saying, hey, I wrote this poem about you. <laughs> Celibacy idolatry. My body was reserved for only God, and though it spasmed, pleading for release, until I felt like some obstructed clod, in fear of my own flesh that wouldn't cease. I mortified that flesh with packs of ice, supposedly for saving of my soul, from being caught within the grip of vice, yet found that I was worshipping control. But idols I've revered instead of God have fooled me into thinking they were good. So I have failed to see each was a fraud, just like the ones of plastic or of wood. Please pardon my idolatry mistakes. Oh Jesus, free me from revering fakes. Christians and Jews, idolatry is maybe the worst sin or maybe the source of all sins, the thing that takes our eyes and and trust off of God. In your poem, Celibacy, Idolatry, uh, you write about making an idol out of being celibate. And that's not a sin that we hear warned about or preached about very much. I just was kind of struck by that, that that's is just something you don't hear like people having a big problem with. So I'm curious your angle on that. Well, okay, yeah, that's a really complex question. And so I just posted yesterday a song called Scrupulosity. And it's pertinent to this question because the celibacy idolatry was related to, in a way, to this scrupulosity. Because this is an important question, I think, because it is, I think, a, a problem which afflicts, you know, a lot of people. The idea that that you have to be um, completely pure in your thoughts. And celibacy is, of course, you know, something that's considered very important, like if you're not married. Now, I will say, like, I really am not in a position to advise people on this kind of thing. However, I can say, I'm just speaking from my experience. I mean, I was married for a time. I got divorced. And, of course, biologically speaking, the human body, the way it works is, you know, you have hormones and you have natural functions that don't go away just because you're not married. Sure. And um, in my particular case, what happened was I had a problem. It's a pelvic muscle dysfunction. And there's actually a book about the phenomenon, which is called A Headache in the Pelvis. So it made this situation, you know, very difficult. And so what scrupulosity is? Scrupulosity is a kind of OCD. So it became an obsession for me to sort of be sexually pure, to basically not even have any thoughts related to it. So now imagine also, like, I was having this uh, pelvic dysfunction, so I would get these muscle spasms. It felt like all my organs were going to fall out of my body. Yeah. Yeah, it was really bad. At one point in my life, I would do something that took care of that. We don't need to specify what it was, but we can all imagine what it is. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and so, uh, so when I got this idea that, nope, I can't do that, it took me a while to find out that this was a form of idolatry. Now, imagine you are given an itch, and you have decided that the most important thing in your life is that you can't scratch it. So consequently, then, everything becomes about the itch and that you can't scratch it. That actually is the greater sin. The celibacy idolatry, I mean, 
Sure, it, it, it applied in a certain way to me because of the condition I had, but I think it has a broader applicability in the sense that it is a, a part of life that can lend itself to, um, you can't do this, you have to do that, and obsession in the sense of, you know, following certain rules about what you are and aren't supposed to do. Right. And I think that it's important to say that that can be a form of idolatry. It's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. And I remember back in university, I took some theology classes, and one of my professors, and this was kind of shocking to me at the time, and he had said that if you're one of these folks that won't lay something on top of the Bible, like maybe another book or coffee cup or something like that, he said, you should be careful because you may be making an idol out of the Bible. I thought that was right. interesting. And I didn't understand it at the time, but later on, as I started to process more, you know, not only the history of, of uh, Scripture and um, Christianity and people's belief and all, all that kind of stuff, I started to really get it. And I see Bible-idolatry, but other idolatries in the church all the time, and I, I guess somehow we become blind to it. Yes, I think that's important to recognize as well. I mean, I've never heard the term, what is it? Bi Bibleolatry, I guess. I, I can't remember how he said it. It was something like that. Bibleolatry, exactly true, because the Bible is not God. You know, God is God. There's possibility to argue endlessly about, you know, the things in the Bible and whatnot. As I said, I mean, I really don't want to tell anybody what to believe in this sense, mm -hmm. you know, as far as the Bible or anything. I can only say from my own experience, you know, at a certain point in life, you might feel the need to extract what's useful from something for you and figure out if something is harmful for you. The image that I like is, for example, if, if you're in a boat and the boat has a danger of sinking and you have a choice between taking with you like a little book that contains all the words of Jesus and then a bunch of other stuff like all the catechisms of the church and all these other, you know, things, then you might want to just prioritize and stick to just the things that Jesus said and try to follow those as much as you can. Yeah, in my own experience, and I remember at times being confused by going back to the Bible, you know, things that maybe St. Paul had said or some of the things were in the Old Testament, and they seemed to maybe not jive with or at times even contradict what Jesus said. And I remember having a, a giant crisis with this, and uh, I remember at some point I just prayed. I said, well, God, I'm just going to stick to the Ten Commandments and the, the two greatest commandments. And if anything I sense violates that, even if it's within the Bible, I'm just going to ignore it. And I hope, hope that's cool. Which is, I think, a, a good, healthy attitude to take. Because, as I said, like, the thing with scrupulosity, I mean, people can obsess about, like, breaking all kinds of things. Like, you break some rule here, or break some rule there, or you don't believe this particular thing. Like, okay, it's in the Bible, but you don't believe that particular thing, so, you know, what? it's your problem. So, the thing is that you can think that because you don't believe certain things, or because you are unable to do certain things, you might feel like, well, there's no hope for you. But as I said, I feel like that's a good attitude, which is that basically, you know, you're a human being and you do the best that you can. But if you start obsessing about every little detail, and the details, quite frankly, are confusing, as I said, because there are some evident contradictions and whatnot. So start obsessing about that, not good. It's not going to actually help you achieve anything helpful in the world and uh, possibly mess you up pretty badly. For me, I keep reminding myself that 
you know, God is our father, and like any father, he just it will see the bigger picture and, and see that you're struggling and see that you're trying and, and not hold you to every little thing. Right. It's true. Yeah. On the other hand, there, there are a lot of people who want to hold you to every little thing. Oh, yeah. It's, people are yeah. the problem. Yeah, and think that, you know, okay, you're not following this or you're not believing this particular thing, therefore you're doomed. Yeah. But basically, you know, I believe in Jesus. I mean, I think, you know, there's been thousands of years of people having experiences of Jesus. So I think we can pretty much say that Jesus is established as an experiential fact. So people who, who believe that he is not, it's like believing that there's no such thing as falling in love because you haven't fallen in love. Mm. Um, similar sort of thing, I think. On the other hand, we all have, you know, unique experiences. And we all may have different ways of reading the Bible. That's why, of course, we're going to have disagreements regardless of whether we are believe in Jesus or not, or are Christian or not. I mean, just the fact that there's so many denominations, I mean, illustrates that. Sure. Or the fact that, you know, Christians can argue all the time. In the case of celibacy idolatry, I want to um, talk about my experience and get it out there because I think a lot of people are probably experiencing similar problems certainly that's why you know in putting out there the sonnet of scrupulosity also i don't want to make myself seem like i have all the answers i want to say that look i've been pretty messed up you know in a way i sort of i i am still in the sense that i do have this ocd what it was was this idea that i have to be perfect and i have to live you know perfectly or try to live perfectly therefore like if i have any bad thoughts I would be terrified of doing something bad, doing something against God. What can happen is that they get intrusive thoughts. Because say, for example, you're afraid of cats, for example. And you're terrified that you're everywhere you're going, that you're going to see a cat. So then you're always thinking about cats. That's how this phenomenon works. Because um, the fear, you feel like it's something to be afraid of. The ironic thing is this fear of doing something against God is exactly the fear that takes you away from God, you know, because uh, as they say, perfect love casts out fear. So the converse is perfect fear casts out love. You know, you're unable to sort of think in those terms anymore because, uh, because of the fear. And so I think it's important to talk about an extreme case of that because I think many people are dealing with lesser cases of it, but cases which are still, you know, difficult, unnecessarily difficult. I was talking to a preacher recently. He was talking about sometimes we mistake, like you said, being attracted, say, to an, a woman who's not your wife, with that being the sin, when it's actually, that's just a feeling. Is this how you act on it that right. becomes the sin or not? And I actually wrote a poem about this one time. It's quite, It's kind of like a reflex. Mm -hmm. I mean, if somebody taps your knee, your knee is going to go up. You know, if you see that attractive woman, you're going to have uh, a feeling that she's attractive. It's, it's sort of like a reflex. But that is a thought that you can see, okay, I see where that thought came from. But we have a lot of also random thoughts, like thoughts like you wonder where they came from, that, you know, quite frankly, may shock a person that has them. And so what happens to people without OCD, if they have such a kind of thought, is they will just take it as a random thought. But people with OCD, they focus on every single thought and say like, oh, God, no, I cannot have such a thought. I, can, I should not have any bad thought. 
you know, because that idea of trying to be perfect, and of course, the important thing to realize is, of course, that only God is perfect, only Jesus is perfect, and we don't have to be perfect. Jewel flakes. What jeweler fashions snowflakes, all unique, each one, when closely seen, a crystal gem that's crafted with an artistry we seek for making things as beautiful as them? To those who answer that each little jewel was sculpted by the laws of chemistry, like water crystallizes when it's cool. I say the jeweler's still a mystery. For laws, like those of physics, can't explain the reason laws exist, nor even why these laws would tell the water to be rain or geometric jewels dropped from the sky. They could be all the same. Instead, we know love's artfulness expressed in flakes of snow. Mismatch. So many now are married to the view of life that claims that they are only matter, that gives a bitter pill for them to chew, of pointlessness that's making people sadder. And though the view is like a spouse that beats, so many feel they have no other choice, but spend their lives with it, although it cheats them of the view that would make them rejoice. But you can shed the load that you have carried, of thinking that you have to stay with it, the view to which, like others, you were married, and find for your soul's sake a better fit. Reluctantly, you married as if forced. I hope and pray that you will get divorced. In your poem, Jewel Flakes, you mentioned the, I guess, the scientific kind of folks who argue against the magic or the divinity, so to speak, in the structure of jewels. And you allude to a similar cold view in your poem, Mismatched, about those who hold humans as just you know a, a bunch of matter. And I'm reminded of uh, seeing the elemental diagram, I guess you would call it, of the chemicals in our brain that go into the feeling of love, is it perplexing to you to live in a culture that champions that kind of thinking, but at the same time, you know, they're always shouting about compassion and they use phrases like love wins, and yet at the same time they deny the divinity of these ideas and realities. Right, this is true, and um, well, here's the thing, because you can't have it both ways. If love is an electrical impulse, then there is not actually love. It's the same applies to, for example, good and evil. There is either good and evil, which exists as fundamental things, or there's not. And if everything is chemicals, there is not good and evil. I mean, there are not good and evil because good and evil are not aspects of chemistry. Yeah, I can plug in like a covalent bond, ionic bonds, Hydrogen, oxygen, but where am I going to put good and evil there? Right. <laughs> it's just not a property of matter. So if good and evil exist, and I think they do, 
and we think they do, surely, then there is something other than matter. It's kind of like, well, I've always felt like, you know, you have a radio, so imagine, and this is actually the um, a neuroscientist, David Eagleman, has, has actually talked about this metaphor, which is the radio analogy. So let's say, for example, you have a radio, and the radio is playing music. So now, if you take the mind as a kind of radio, it's playing certain music, the music of experiences, the music of love, the music of, you know, the things that, you know, go on in your life. On the other hand, if you're a materialist, you think, okay, the music is actually just from the wires. There's no such thing as anything that's, you know, music. There's nothing but the radio. As I said, the neuroscientist David Eagleman says there's nothing that we know in our science that precludes the possibility that the brain is a receiver. The bottom line is that, you know, you can't have it both ways because if you're an atheist and, or a materialist and you believe that everything is just chemicals, you can't carry over the Judeo-Christian philosophy with you. You have to jettison the idea that there's such a thing as right and wrong and good and evil. You have nothing but matter. And good and evil, love, these are not properties of matter. That reminds me, I think it was the father of one of the, the kids that was killed at the Columbine shooting. I think he was allowed to talk on some news thing, and, and he blamed the incident somewhat on our society, how we've taught children that, you know, humans are no different than animals. There's, there's no meaning. So, in a way, you know, killing a human being is no different than, you know, squashing a roach. And it struck me, and I, I know I have a lot of atheist friends that really cringe when I bring that, that idea up. Because, again, they, like you say, are trying to have it both ways. But I, I feel like it is the logical conclusion that there's no God, there's no divinity and other human beings, what difference does it make if I pop the head off of a dandelion or pop the head off my friend? Absolutely. So those people who say like, okay, we're just like animals, you know, the number nine is a number, so is the number one. Number nine is a higher number. So it's, it's, I believe it's like that with us. I mean, we, I think we can pretty safely say that we're higher than cockroaches. Now, science is great. Don't get me wrong. I, I think it's awesome. But on the other hand, when scientists get all philosophical and say that, you know, philosophy is dead and, and uh, you know, there's only matter, then they're going into um, stuff that really they have no business. They have no expertise. And, um, of course, we know about scientism, which is the idea that everything that's possible to know it can be known by science, which is, of course, a philosophical idea. You know, that's not actually a scientific statement or, or it's yeah. a philosophy. It's a choice to believe that. It's saying that basically human experience doesn't really count as a form of knowledge. Hmm. So if they want to believe that, they're free to do so. But, you know, we're not obliged to believe that. The other aspect of it is, too, like, okay, you know, the universe follows certain laws. Where do these laws come from? It's all a mystery. Why is it that certain chemicals are associated with certain feelings? Why should a piece of matter be associated with anything other than itself? So it's a complex issue. It's regarding, like, I think, what is fundamental? Are elements fundamental? Like, so that we are elemental beings in the sense that we're made of elements like carbon and oxygen. Yet some people nevertheless believe that, that elements aren't actually what is fundamental, that mind is fundamental, for example. A Christian believes that God is fundamental, that love is fundamental, and that um, 
we as elemental beings, although elements are bound to disintegrate um, because we have um, love, which is God in us, but I, yeah, a lot of poems that I've written have been in that vein of facing the age that we are in, in which, uh, for example, somebody, a uh, famous uh, astrophysicist, I think it was Lawrence Krauss, wrote The Universe from Nothing, in which he said, um, well, we don't need God because basically, you know, the universe can come out of nothing, out of this, from the laws of physics, out of the quantum foam. Well, then, obviously, okay, where do the laws of physics and the quantum foam come from? That's not really nothing, is it? Emulating Moonlight Sea turtles hatching on a southern shore Wobbled toward the lights along the pier Their vision and direction sense still poor their fates would probably have been severe. The moon, ideally their proper guide, was hidden in the sky that wasn't clear. And led astray by bulbs, they could have died before that ocean beacon could appear. But people hatched a plan for helping out. With flashlights emulating lunar guidance, they coaxed the turtles to the proper route employing their instinctive light reliance. You too help some steer from a lifeless fate and lead them home with light you emulate. You have a poem called Emulating Moonlight and you're talking about these sea turtles in the light. I don't live near the ocean, so is, is that true? It actually was, was true. It didn't happen to me personally. It happened to my sister, and she, she told me the story, so I turned it into a sonnet. Where did this happen, exactly? It happened in uh, Virginia. And it's something they do all the time? or? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, I was living for a while in Florida, and it was a similar situation. The sea turtles, they hatch on the beach. And if there's lights on the shore, they will go towards the shore and they may die. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they instituted, I think, some policies where you can't have lights on the shore. I mean, so that the sea turtles won't get confused. Shadow as if you were afraid of your own shadow and always watched to see what it was doing because you were convinced it was a bad foe that you should spend your effort in pursuing. You feared your shady character, your past, and tried to keep it always in your sight. But staring at the shadow that you cast made you forget to look instead at light. You fear your shadow self could swallow you, but turn toward light, for it can only follow you. Do you mind talking about the poem Shadow? Sure. I don't have a question other than I'm just a little curious where it came from. So 
say for example, it's like you have a solar system, and in the solar system, the sun is the only light source. Everything else shines by reflected light. And I think that also applies to human beings, that we are like planets in the sense that, you know, we have a light side, which is the side of ourselves that is lit, and we have a dark side, which is the side of ourselves which is not lit. And it's constantly shifting because, you know, the planet is spinning. This actually ties in with some of the other things that we've talked about, which is the idea that you're supposed to be all good. So that you're supposed to have, like, all of a light side, and only a light side. Well, that actually is a denial of the reality. And as such, it's very problematic because it, it's actually very harmful to people to, to try to hammer into them that they're supposed to be perfect and all light and, you know, make them feel like flops if they're not. Because, of course, no one is. But then the shadow side of ourselves, there's a difference between the shadow and evil. So I think it's something like, for example, that I think of it more in terms of the way uh, maybe Carl Jung talked about it. Understanding. The understanding is that, you know, we are planetary. We shine by reflected light that's not ours. And we also have these shadow sides, which are not something that we're supposed to stamp out. Because if you try to stamp them out, it's just uh, it's futile. So the, the thing I, I mean that Carl Jung talks about is like not to try to stamp it out, but to make it conscious, to be conscious of it. And he talked about like projecting the shadow. Like people who don't want to admit that there's a shadow side to them will project their shadow onto other people. So, for example, in the times that he was living, um, which is the time that also the Hitler arose, there was a lot of that where you know. The demonization of other people, like in his case, is like, oh, the Jews are all bad. And so people who like want to say that other people are the bad ones, you have to really watch out for that because, you know, they're not seeing their own stuff. And in our times, of course, I don't want this to get political, but nevertheless, I think similar things happening where certain people are demonizing people from other countries and whatnot. And uh, so it's a similar situation. They don't want to face the, the shadow in themselves. So right. therefore, it's other people who are bad. Maybe I've said this on other podcasts. Probably sound like a broken record, but it probably bears repeating that when I focus on somebody else's shortcomings, if they even are real, I'm taking the focus off myself and the time I could be using to, to fix or work on the problems, my own problems. Yeah, I mean, the world is full of people who want to tell everybody what to do or what's good to do. But if we just share our experiences, I think it perhaps might be better. Because we'll say like, you know, uh, what's worked for us, what hasn't worked for us, what has harmed us, as opposed to trying to hammer something into everybody else's head. I'd fret about the rules I shouldn't break and made up new ones that I thought were good and gave myself an existential ache with fear that I would not do what I should. I'd fret about my every thought and feeling that didn't match what I considered pure and tried to crush the ones that weren't appealing and it seemed that I would be damned for sure. But while I couldn't face that I was flawed and that my thoughts were full of rot and death. 
I focused on myself instead of God, and faith he pulled me from my hellish depth. My sin appeared so mighty and immense, but it's not God with love's omnipotence. highbrow literary types really look down on rhyming poetry, but this is a form you stick with. Is there a reason for that? Yes, it's the kind I love. I don't really have much interest really in writing any other kind. It's just the kind of thing that I love. And um, the meter, you know, the iambic pentameter, and uh, I just think of its relation to music. In a way, it's sort of like, to me, it's alive because, you know, it has a beat, it has a pulse. So the meter is, is alive in that sense. If you're talking in prose, it's different in the sense that it doesn't have that pulse. So I feel like when I ask somebody to read a sonnet, I feel like it's a living thing in the sense that it has that pulse. And there are some poets that, you know, still write in rhyme and meter. There's a group, you know, I mean, it's called like, I guess like neo-formalism or the new, the new formalists. But the thing about my poems is... Um, they are suffer from a double whammy of not being very common nowadays in the sense of, or not popular nowadays in the sense that not only are they rhyming and in meter, but they're also religious. So, like, I have been involved in some groups of, you know, people that rhyme and people that write and rhyme and meter, and I was still sort of, like, largely an anachronism because uh, I was writing religious poetry. And actually, I had many, many discussions with, you know, poets in these groups about um, the things that we're talking about today. And it's startling to see that, you know, there's a lot of skepticism and materialism, even among poets. So that's sad to see, because after all, traditionally, poets are not, oh, it's all about chemicals. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it, it's the cool thing, and I think in science and literature, there is blacklisting, and so and so is not cool. People get fired, you know, if they are not hip to the times. That's the thing I, I see more than anything, and it's a little scary and, and unfortunate because there's no dialogue. I mean, I guess my mother, who is a poet, also could say the same thing because my my parents are actually Cuban exiles, and uh, my mother has published like 22 books of poems. But because she's a Cuban exile, she's faced a lot of those kinds of things of uh, political blacklisting. Translucence, you're fragile as is glass, but not transparent. Although through you a certain light can shine that to the naked eye is not apparent. You're like a stained glass window of a shrine and feel your tribulations aren't in vain when light brings out the beauty in the pain.
your mother being a, a poet in her own right, how does she influence your writing? It's hard to answer that question because the answer, I think it's something that goes beyond words. But I'd say that from my mother and her work, I was infused from an early age with the importance of a devotion to love, beauty, and meaning in life. Because you mentioned love. Obviously, yep. she went through a lot with the Castro regime. How did she find, I would assume, love and forgiveness, considering all the trouble that her and the rest of her countrymen had to go through? Of course, in the Catholic sense, um, you know, the kingdom of the world is sort of very imperfect. So because of that, I think a lot of people don't believe, become cynical and believe that there is no such thing as... Um, love or transcendence and uh, of course despite her experiences of that nature she has kept that belief and devotion to uh, the transcendent and to love Helplessness revelation. It's easy to believe you are a god when you are healthy, lovely, young, and strong. Yet then you find that this belief is flawed, or rather that it's absolutely wrong. You find that you are helpless in the end, and not omnipotent, some deity. I found this in a wound I couldn't mend that made my poorness evident to me. Before you feel your helplessness, you may turn to the God that's real, that isn't you. Before what is, I hope, that far-off day, beyond yourself, you'll seek the God that's true. At times, we all have thought we are divine, but we're like grapes that just grow on the vine. Maybe every generation has thought that it was the generation that could build you know, the Tower of Babel or could do anything it wanted without the hang-up of believing in God. You address this in your poem, Helplessness Revelation, I think. If there's an atheist still listening to this podcast, uh, they haven't turned it off by now. How would you reiterate that point that you make in their poem? Like, How would you argue? I have to say I wrote that sonnet after I had an experience where I was swimming in the ocean, and I was having a fantastic time. It was just awesome. I was, you know, looking up at the sky on my back, and then I suddenly my heart started pounding insanely fast. It was uh, like over 250 beats a minute. I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm having a heart attack. So I came out of the water. So a few minutes after I was, you know, looking at the sky and having a grand time, I was in an ambulance looking at the ceiling of an ambulance. Oh, wow. And so then I was in the emergency room and then, uh, you know, my heart went down. But then when you, anybody who has not had an experience like that or a similar experience can't realize that they are ultimately absolutely helpless. And I think, you know, of course, like when you're young and healthy, which is the point that I wanted to make in the beginning of that sonnet, is that, um, you know, you're unaware of that. You think you really you really have a lot of power. You can just do anything you want. Of course, those kinds of experiences really wake you up to the fact that, no, you can't. You're ultimately helpless. 
So when you get a sneak preview of that sort of thing, you realize your dependence. And that's something that could be obvious in other ways. I mean, we wake up every day and we eat the food that other people have grown. You know, we're constantly being sustained by other people. But existentially speaking, we can't be sustained by other people. There's, there's a point where nobody can help us. It's just us and God. Or if you don't believe in God, it's just us and the elements. Collaboration. A tree won't brag about its ample leaves, as though it could produce them on its own. Without the gift of sunlight it receives, without which it would be inert as stone. Yet sometimes ego trips make us believe that we can bear the fruits we do alone. But we find out these ego trips deceive, and lightless we'd be lifeless like a bone. In truth the trees and sun collaborate, And trees don't feel they should get all the credit. And love provides for all that we create. The music, art, the books we write and edit. Trees can't make leaves alone. They may have tried. But light gives life and nothing grows from pride. On collaboration... I think I hear you saying that taking pride in things that we produced is a little bit foolish. If I can play devil's advocate. Okay. If that's the case, if it's foolish to feel good about producing things that, guess what you're trying to say, to go back to the radio analogy, that maybe we're channeling God or, or somebody else beyond us. At the same time, what's to keep us from not feeling bad about our bad actions, our, our hurtful actions? In a certain way, of course, it, it is good to feel bad about our bad actions. Of course, not to the point of, like, rendering yourself useless. Like, um, you know, I don't know if you know Jewel, but, you know, she has, you know, one of her songs, there's a lyric in there, which is, I won't be made useless, won't be idle with despair. It's about, we are God's hands. Now, let's say, for example, okay, you did something bad. Now, what is better for you to do? Take some, a little bit of time to uh, realize that you've done something bad, repent about it, and then go on with moving, trying to do good things. Or should you obsess about the bad that you've done for several weeks until you're basically incapacitated by your sinfulness? You know, it's, it's all about proper measure. So I think it's the same with the um, taking credit for something creative and good that you did. It's sort of like if you take it out of its proper measure, and taking it out of its proper measure would be some, like basically taking credit for it, complete credit. That's what I mean, just like the leaves completely taking credit for their growth. Thanks for making time for me. Well, thanks so much for interviewing me. That was great and, and I appreciate it. And if people want to buy your books, how would they go about that? Um, well, they're on Amazon, and um, of course, there's snapshot couplets. There's a lot of science there. Snapshot couplets. That's your blog, correct? Right. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app 
to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Thank you.